I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I had my annual evaluation this week. And the only productive sort of uh, criticism, not really criticism, statement that came out of it was that your sermons last longer than a Werther's. So I I was going to have the ushers hand out Werther's this morning and invite you to hold up your hand when you finished and I'd stop. I am not going to directly address the gospel passage this morning other than to say that what we will talk about might, rather than try to clarify all of that stuff that's in the gospel passage, give us a sense of attitude to how we are to hold and honor and carry those things that it tells us not to do or to do. I've entitled my talk, Dominion or Domination. Dominion or Domination, a Relational Dilemma. And as far as the church goes, we do take some liberties on the Feast of St. Francis. But then that fits with the nature of who he was. He stepped out of his norms to see the wonder of God in everything. He stepped outside of his wealthy culture, out of his heritage, to incarnate an intimate connection with the creation. And he saw the soul or image of God, image of the divine in all of creation. He took to heart and mind the words that we find in Romans. Everything that can be known about God is made plain in the things that God has made. And when he preached, it made little difference to him whether he was preaching to humans, animals, or trees. He said, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. And so to honor him and our pets this morning, I want to focus on the Genesis passage. We lose much if we try to find a literal way to align the creation story with science. But I want to suggest we lose more if we simply dismiss this story as a naive fabrication. And I want to demonstrate that both a literal interpretation and a fabrication dismissal are consequences of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life. But more about that later. Personally, I prefer to call the Genesis accounts of creation a saga. Today, the word saga is used to describe something, a story that is very complicated and detailed, a complicated and detailed series of events. And a number of scholars, especially Hebrew scholars and teachers, have suggested that the foundation of the Hebrew scriptures and the spiritual life are found in the first three chapters of Genesis. Some have even suggested that the rest of Genesis, the rest of scripture, is a commentary of the shared experiences regarding the divine intent found in the first three chapters of Genesis. I find myself intrigued with that possibility. The idea that somehow the divine intent for all of creation is firmly planted, firmly established, perhaps even incarnated, incarnate in this Eden saga. 
actually likely two Eden sagas. The first Eden saga we see is in chapter one, and the story is repeated in a different form in chapter two, beginning at verse five. And most scholars believe that the second one is the oldest one. It seems more earthy, more oral in its imagery, and that the first one probably comes out of a priestly orientation, tied together by verse four. But regardless, I want to focus on this passage, both of these passages, hoping to provide a blessing to each of us, as well as to these wonderful creatures that have joined us this morning. So join me as we take a brief walk through the goodness and truth and beauty of Eden. The word Eden means delight and is reflected constantly as God creates. And it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And in today's passage, it was very good. I want to specifically focus on two thoughts. One, in our Eden story today, we are told that we are given dominion, and I want to focus on that. In the second story, we are asked to name the creatures. And the setting for both of these, given dominion and naming the creatures, is the setting of this garden with these two distinct trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. So first of all, domination or dominion. In this creation story, we are given dominion. And I wonder if we might find that our sense of superiority and entitlement have arisen out of this biblical dominion being interpreted as domination. We certainly have seem to have taken that to heart in our history, even somehow feeling that likely our particular cultural authority gives us permission to use and abuse all kinds of created and historical cultural realities. And so I offer you some questions this morning, perhaps not answers. Do you have a relational orientation to life or are you more ideological? What's more important to you, correct thinking or meaningful connection? What's more important to you, to be right or to be understood? Do you like people who agree with you or do you like people for their inherent worth? Does God like people who agree with God? Or does God like people for their inherent created worth? Obviously, I'm suggesting that the divine intent is that God's love is inherent in the fact that we are all created in the divine image and that all of creation bears the mark of the, created, of the creator. And in our story today, God looks at it all and says, not only is it good, it's very good. The tone of the Genesis passage in English might be a little confusing. It's the language of a commanding officer, or as the Psalms suggest, a sovereign, this title of majesty. And it's so like us to weave culture and faith in our scriptures, into our scriptures. And we always want to find words for this because we like control. And words give us not control, but a semblance of control. And yet, conceptually, 
I will notice with you that more often than not, God tends to be silent, except through the words that pop out through the cracks of our individual experience. We say that we have tamed the animals. However, perhaps it is the animals that have tamed and trained us. No animal ever picked up my deposits in a plastic bag. I have to bath myself so far. I seldom get my hair combed, although the comb hardly notices. And many pets insist that we take them for a walk every day, sometimes more than once a day. And we so easily forgive them for all their chewing and digging that they impose on our lives. And we usually forgive them far easier than we forgive one another. So perhaps we should consciously invite them to tame us. For while there are animals that we fear for their meat-eating tendencies and necessity, and for their protective instincts, we are by far the cruelest and barbaric of the creatures. And we go to great lengths to sanitize our violence against nature and one another. And we are much less forgiving. I told the story before of the man pushing the cart with a dog tied to the cart. And the dog was pulling the cart off to his right, and he kept yanking him back, trying to get him to stay on the sidewalk. And the dog persisted. And the man pulled harder, till finally, as I sat at the stop sign, I watched this man hit this dog on the side of the face. And the dog cowered. And then the man pulled his foot back and was about to kick the dog, and he stopped. I was about to honk my horn or jump out. And he knelt down in front of that dog and he began to weep, saying, I was sorry. And instantly, what was the dog doing? Licking his face. Now, I'm not condoning the abuse, but pets have much to teach us. And so in this garden, in this context of dominion and domination, dominion with its temptation of domination, we have two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And as I've said before, it seems counterintuitive not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It promises to help me understand right and wrong. Why wouldn't I eat? What do you mean something's going to die if I eat from that tree? And so it almost seems natural that we would be tempted by that tree to figure this out. After all, this God is bringing us these things and asking us to name them. What if we name it wrong? And here's a tree that promises to give us the ability to discern right and wrong. And we eat. And suddenly we realize that while we may have understood something, there are a whole host of other things that only have become more mysterious. And that the message is that when you become focused on only the right and the wrong, you will be tempted by moving from dominion to domination. I'm right, you're wrong. And for me to be right, someone else has to be wrong. And if we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it will tempt us. And yet the right and wrong is very important. It's singled out. The tree is placed in the middle of the garden. The command is not ignore it. The command is don't eat it. Don't make it the source of how you feel about yourself and how you relate to others. 
We were more interested in that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree that we were given freedom to eat from didn't feel like it gave us much control. It was too loosey-goosey. It was all over the place. And we promptly tended to ignore it. So what might dominion that doesn't include domination look like? Just a few metaphors. The first one is pruning. I have a number of trees in my orchard that I prune every year. I prune them not because I want to hurt them, because I'm hoping for a bigger yield of fruit. And if I prune successfully, I do get a larger yield of fruit. I have a walnut tree that drives me crazy. And every year I over prune it. And Lynn comes out and says, you're going to kill it. And yet, after I do in that one year, it pushes out branches that are 12, 14, 16 feet and a host of fruit. And so while it may at times appear like I am harming the tree, harming myself in my confrontation, harming one another in our give and take with each other, if the attitude is one of giving life, not domination, the intent will be to produce in us and in the person more fruit, enabling, encouraging, confront, confronting lovingly, supporting, not controlling because we have domination. Not lording it over, but leading with. Not abusing. And this is where naming comes in. Naming is a big deal. When you got these pets as puppies, you took a lot of time and thought in naming them. Why? Because you wanted to get it right? No, because somehow the name represented a connection between you and this created being, this gift from God. We do the same with our children. And I've told the story before of meeting my twin granddaughters for the first time. Three pounds, nine ounces, and four pounds, one. And I walk into the hospital the day they come home from the hospital, and the nurse hands me one in each hand. And you're in love. And you want a connection. I wasn't concerned about what was right or what was wrong. I wanted a connection. And I found myself talking to them, knowing they couldn't hear, wanting a connection. I found myself naming things. This is Pooh Bear. This is Nana, etc. It's not because I wanted to prove how smart I was. I wanted a connection. And about six, eight months later, 12 months later, they are now bringing me things. And they are saying, Papa, what's this? Why, because I'm the smart guy? No, they want a connection. It's a way for us to interact. It's a third thing. And so God brings humanity, these animals, and says, why don't you name it? But how do I know I'm naming it right? And the next line says, and whatever they named it, that's what it became. Do you get that? God didn't say that. You're calling that an aardvark? That's stupid. Whatever they named it, that's what it became. Naming is a big deal. And I know what happens to me when someone names me other than my name, Gary. If they name me because I did something kind, it feels wonderful. If I cut somebody off and they give me some other names, 
it does not feel the same. Naming one another is a big deal. And it's so easy for us in our temptation with domination to name things as stupid or ugly or bad or different or male or female in a negative way. Whatever you name it, that's what it becomes. God brings each of us our lives every day, wheat and chaff, and asks us to name it. God is not sitting there saying, you just named that wrong. God is saying, whatever you name it, that's what it'll become. But keep naming. Keep naming. And as you name, you will begin to realize that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, while it's in the center of the garden, it is the doorway to the tree of life. It gives you the guidelines, so don't eat from it. Go to the tree of life when confronted by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will find life, and you will continue to name, and however you name, God will receive what you name in love, not evaluating whether you named it right or not. God invites us to keep naming. I might suggest that's prayer. Naming what God brings to our lives and trusting that as we continue to name, we will continue to move towards more and more life. This is summarized in our James passage, or at least the consequence of it is. First of all, what happens when we name as a reality influenced by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. That's a domination wisdom. Here's the alternative. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. This is a life-giving wisdom, not a domination wisdom. And this is what feeds us. Amen.